about um, blindness today, which um, obviously is something which uh, relates uh, very much to uh, Richard Glyn Vivian's own experiences. Um, Glyn Vivian suffered significant eye problems uh, later in life, um, and his own concerns about his failing sight and his attempts to find a cure for his loss of vision are mentioned frequently in his later diaries. So, for example, on the 13th of July 1902, uh, Richard described his eyes as very bad. Um, and later on that year, in October, when he, was, um, when he came up to, to London from Sketty Hall, he wrote that he was very blind. Now, the diaries themselves are, are fascinating sources, but they don't tell us a great deal about his feelings about uh, sight loss or how he experienced it. But I think we can perhaps assume his anxiety about his fading vision um, from the frequent references uh, to his attempts to find a cure. During the summer of 1902, he was regularly attending appointments with a London oculist. Um, an oculist, is, it's a sort of vague term really, but um, refers to a specialist in the treatment of eye diseases, uh, probably slightly higher up the occupational hierarchy than an optician. Um, possibly someone as well who uh, specialises in an aspect of eye surgery. During the summer of 1902, he was also um, recommended um, to go and uh, see an optician in Portland Street by his friend, Madame Besson. And from October 1903, um, Richard Glyn Vivian attended the eye clinic founded by Alexander Pagenstetcher in Wiesbach in southern Germany. And, and it was here that he submitted to more extreme treatments including having his eyeballs injected with strychnine. Probably by Herman, by Herman Pagenstetcher, the, the uh, oculist who had examined Queen Victoria's eyesight in 1899. Now strychnine, as you know, um, I hope you know, is, is a poison and uh, uh, nowadays we would not recommend injecting it into the eyes or indeed any other part of the body. But in the Victorian era and Edwardian era, it was sometimes used to produce a contraction of the pupil and uh, induce muscle accommodation. Um, I can find uh, an image of strychnine eye drops on this slide as well as um, a very familiar image of um, Glyn Vivian with his pug. Um, that this is um, a medicine, um, so a nervous cure which contains uh, strychnine. Um, it's used as a, as a tonic to uh, invigorate the nervous system. And around about this time, Glyn Vivian was uh, receiving treatment for his nerves. His diaries for 1903 document further visits to specialists in London and to uh, practitioners on the continent. He probably suffered from glaucoma, which eventually robbed him of his eyesight altogether. And losing his sight is said to have been a catalyst for a spiritual awakening that led him to found his great charitable venture, 
the international miners' mission. Now, aside from losing his own sight, Richard Glyn was interested in the plight of the blind more generally. He sometimes, in the diaries, writes about other people's blindness in sentimental terms. So, for example, um, around about the same time that he was losing his own sight, he recorded a, a meeting a 16-year-old blind girl whom he noted was in despair. And this brings to my mind um, this um, uh, image here, um, uh, John Everett Millet's painting The Blind Girl from uh, 1856, um, also showing a 16-year-old uh, uh, blind girl with her sighted sister. And this is typical of Victorian sentimentality around sight loss. Um, the, girl in, the, the blind girl in the picture, um, she's an itinerant beggar. Uh, she is, uh, she, uh, she's holding, she has on her lap a um, accordion, um, showing it's a, 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 an association between blindness and, um, and, 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 and musical um, occupations. Um, we have plenty of records, uh, accounts of um, itinerant blind musicians um, earning their living on the streets of London, Dublin and other uh, large cities during the 19th century and indeed for um, many centuries before that. So Gwyneth sort of writes about blindness um, of others in uh, these sort of sentimental terms. And in 1907, he extended his philanthropy towards the blind by opening um, a convalescent home um, uh, in Newton. Glenn experiences around the turn of the 20th century reflect important developments in the medical, social and educational approaches to blindness and sight loss that had taken place over the previous hundred years. In the first place, his consultation of a range of medical practitioners demonstrates the growing importance of visual correction over the course of the second half of the 19th century and the growing importance of ophthalmology as a, as a medical specialism. Indeed, ophthalmology had emerged during the first part of the 19th century as the first uh, recognised medical specialty. Uh, over, the over the course of the first part of the 19th century, a number of eye infirmaries were established in, um, in, in various cities around the country. And this reflected an increasing medical interest in the eye and the correction of its defects, uh, influenced in particular by advances in cataract surgery in Paris at the end of the 18th century. Eyesight and its loss developed as critical issues during the Victorian era, especially following the introduction of compulsory elementary education in 1870 and the development of new industrial um, trans uh, technologies and modes of transport, in particular uh, the um, spread of the railways where the, the vision of engine drivers became an important safety concern. As research of my PhD student, Gemma Almond, who is uh, uh, sitting at the back of the room, <laughs> uh, is currently showing, 
Um, Victorians took an increasingly technological approach to the site loss. Uh, Gemma's work charts the um, development of um, spectacles as, um, as assistive technologies, which uh, are uh, gradually destigmatized as the 19th century goes on and, uh, may, um, and become increasingly widely available. So, so, so Glyn Bibbins' sort of search for a cure for his, um, his diminishing sight represents one aspect of uh, a series of changes that have taken place over the previous century. And secondly, his interest in the social welfare of the blind was typical of many Victorian and Edwardian philanthropists. The philanthropic desire to help the blind um, stems in part from uh, this sort of sentimental approach to blindness uh, evident in uh, art such as this. And concerns for the social welfare of the blind saw um, the development of a significant number of institutions which provided education or training for visually impaired children and adults. Glyn Vivian's identification of the blind as occupying a particularly distressed state reflected hierarchical cultural, represent, uh, uh, cultural understandings of disability um, which are prevalent in um, Victorian culture. Blindness was regarded as, as a particularly melancholy condition, but at the same time the blind were recognised as having the potential to earn their living through their own labour. From the end of the 18th century, schools aimed to cater for the happiness of the blind by making them socially and economically useful. At the same time, the development of institutions helped to foster a sense of identity amongst Victorian blind people, giving some the confidence to speak out against the limitations of charity and the ideas that underpinned it. As a historian of disability, it's this history of social attitudes towards blindness and the responses of blind people themselves that most interests me personally. And so in the rest of today's talk, I want to explore the evolution of cultural attitudes and social policy towards blindness. Um, going back about 100 years from the, uh, from the uh, accounts in Lynn Vivian's diary, that I began this talk by discussing. The focus of the rest of this talk is not on Glyn Vivian himself or his work with the blind. I'm afraid I don't know a great deal about that, so if you've come uh, here to expecting to hear more about Glyn Vivian and the, uh, the home in, in, uh, in Norton, I'm afraid I can't really tell you a great deal about that. But what I can do is tell you um, about the history of blindness to help put into context some of the things that um, Glyn Vivian mentions in his diaries. So I'm going to look at attitudes and approaches to blindness in, the 19, in 19th century Britain to provide uh, a broader context for Glyn Vivian's experiences and for his philanthropy. And in doing so, I'm going to pay attention not just to what was done for the blind or to the blind, but, in, but also pay some attention to how blind people themselves were active in promoting 
their own education and prospects and, and to speak out against their treatment by others. The history of blindness in the 19th century, I would argue, is not just a history of condescension and pity, but it's also the history of people with visual impairments finding a common identity and, um, in, in, in certain cases, finding a public voice to articulate their own concerns as a class. And this is what, make, for me, makes the study of blindness in this period particularly compelling. So I'm going to start then by talking a bit about attitudes towards blindness and how they evolved, and then go on to talk a bit about foundation of uh, institutions and the debates uh, around charity and philanthropy um, in this period. To understand the idea of blindness as a particularly melancholy state, as a distressed state, as I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we need to go back at least as far as the 18th century to understand these ideas. And it's during the Enlightenment in this period that the idea of the senses um, being uh, in a form of hierarchy um, starts to be explored. So the Scottish philosopher Francis Hutchinson um, argued in 1728 that the pleasures of sight and hearing are more esteemed than those of taste or touch, since they produced pleasures of the imagination rather than simple physical pleasures or of external sensations. So it's a link between hearing and sight at the end of the development of the intellect and the development of, the cult of culture, art and science that makes these senses particularly important. Others argued that uh, at the sight, although sight and hearing are both important, sight was actually at the top of the hierarchy. Sight was the sovereign of the senses and the mother of all arts and sciences. Without sight, there could be no civilization, no poetry, no art, no scientific discovery. And so as a consequence, the loss of this sense was considered particularly serious. The lively debates in intellectual circles which spilled out into the period into periodicals and other um, um, texts in the late 18th and early 19th centuries about which was the most miserable state to be in, to be blind or to be deaf. In part this was this was um, a kind of intellectual game, a kind of art, you know, sort of way of practicing rhetoric. But it's spoke also to fundamental ideas about human nature and, um, and spoke to various concerns of people at the time. So on the one hand, some argued that it was worse to be deaf because being unable to hear meant that somebody, meant that a person was robbed of the power of conversation. So they were shut out from social discourse and are isolated as a result of their impairment. And so it's argued that because man was a social animal, um, this kind of loss was particularly damaging. 
On the other hand, um, others argued that blindness was, was the more pitiable state, since the blind were vulnerable and dependent on others to get around. So, fundamentally then, was it more important to be able to, 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 be able to uh, take part in society through conversation, or was it more important to be independent, being able to, um, to, to subsist without the help and necessity of, of others? The, into this debate uh, stepped Thomas Blacklock, who was uh, a Scottish minister and also uh, a poet who himself was blind. And Blacklock wrote the original entry on blindness for the Encyclopaedia Britannica, which is an incredibly interesting piece of writing, um, which well, we can read some feel his own experiences as a, a, a blind man. And in this article in the Encyclopedia, um, published at the end of the 18th century, he argued that the visually impaired were, he said, more meritorious of public compassion than any other impaired person, since they had a more limited sphere of action than the deaf, the lame, or those who labour under any other corporeal infirmity consistent with health. Blind then, or at the at the top of a kind of hierarchy of uh, impairment. Nevertheless, at the same time, Blacklock wrote that the blind, being free from visual stimuli, were less corruptible by envy and greed, were therefore better placed to return feelings of compassion to other people. So. Although Blacklock wrote much in his, particularly in his poetry, about how he had suffered stigma at the hands of other people, um, you know, many people were concerned about having a blind man leading the congregation. Um, at the same time, he, you know, he writes in this, this article here about sort of the idea of blindness as being a kind of tool for emotional self-development, as a kind of uh, um, way of, sort of uh, developing finer feelings towards others. So it's, it's, it's an interesting um, take on, on, on the subject. So while recognising that blindness was a significant disability, Blacklocks emphasised that visually impaired people had a number of com compensating qualities and that they should not be dismissed simply as socially or economically useless. And a similar view was expressed in 1820 by another blind writer, um, named James Wilson. Wilson was born in 1779 in Richmond, Virginia, and he lost his sight as a result of uh, suffering from smallpox in early childhood. And smallpox is one that was probably the biggest cause of blindness in 18th century Europe and North America. So not only did he lose his sight when he was a small child, he also lost both of his parents. And after that, he travelled to Belfast on his own, where he, uh, where, once he arrived in, in Belfast, he earned a living delivering newspapers before entering the, the Belfast Asylum for the Blind. And it's here that he learned practical skills as uh, so a trained to become an upholsterer of furniture. But it wasn't just furniture that he was interested in. He was, he was fascinated 
by literature. And he loved having books read to him. And in 1803, he became a member of the Belfast Reading Society, where with the help of uh, a sighted member who agreed to read with him, he devoured works of ancient and modern history, of poetry, biography, travel writing, pretty much everything he could get his hands on. And Wilson used this knowledge to, to write a book which hardly anyone knows about today, but it's, the I would say, the first history of disability. It's called The Biography of the Blind, and it was published in 1820. And Wilson gathered together um, a series of, sort of, of, of um, biographical accounts, put together a series of biographical accounts of eminent and more obscure blind people um, through history, including fairly, including the people who were um, who lived at the same time as he did. And Wilson described his book as being written with, he said, a view of rescuing my fellow sufferers from the, from the neglect and obscurity in which many of them were involved. That idea of rescuing uh, people from obscurity is sort of, it's something which resonates very much with um, work being done on the history of disability and social history more generally nowadays. And Wilson discovered that there have been many people um, in all ages and every country, he said, who had laboured under the same calamity as myself, um, who had eminently distinguished themselves by their attainments in literature and science. And so he brought to public attention the achievements of these blind men and, uh, interestingly, um, a significant number of blind women as well. So it's, it's really ahead of its time, not just in terms of sort of writing about the history of disabled people and, and emphasising their contribution, but also that he, he treated um, uh, all social classes and both genders as um, kind of fit subjects for history. So he uses so history to try and find and create a community of uh, blind people that he could relate to. And so there's this interest then at the end of the 18th century in remarkable blind people. Um, uh, on the slide here, um, I've given example, examples of two of them. Um, we have um, on the left-hand side, as you look at it, uh, John Metcalf, um, nicknamed Blind Jack Nairsborough, who was an engineer, uh, featured in Wilson's uh, biography of the blind, responsible for um, building roads across the uh, High Peak in Derbyshire. Next to him is um, a young woman called um, Margaret McAvoy um, from uh, Liverpool, who caused a sensation in the 1810s by, being, by claiming to be able to read through her fingers. So she touched print and um, perceived what was, what was written. Now, debates um, abound about whether she was actually a fake, uh, an imposter. Um, one can't really say, but I think the interest in Margaret McAvoy illustrates the sort of um, broader cultural interest around the time of the sort of romantic era in the perceptive powers of the blind and their capabilities. 
So, so, so this, this interest, I think, in the capabilities of the blind, and um, the idea that blind people have, had the potential to be useful, which motivated the foundation of asylums and schools for blind people at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th centuries. Um, the first um, of these was um, the uh, Liverpool School for the Indigent Blind, founded in 1791. Uh, this is followed by other institutions like the uh, School for the Indigent Blind in St George's Fields in, uh, in Southwark, um, which opened in uh, 1799. These uh, uh, austere-looking institutions are shown on this slide here. These, concern, these institutions were born out of um, a kind of philanthropic desire to help those in, um, in, a, in, a, in a difficult situation, but also were born out of more sort of practical and economic concerns about um, the dangers of um, an, an, a large unemployed sector of society. There's a great deal of concern about um, the burdens on, um, on, 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 um, on resources caused by people who might be defined as useless at the end of the um, 18th century. And so institutions such as these were designed to, to train um, young people um, so that they might be able to earn a living for themselves. So they had a strong financial motivation, but they're also concerned about the effects on mental health of being unable to work. Um, so that the uh, founders of institutions argue that the idleness of the blind would make them listless and um, make them um, prone to melancholy, which uh, you know, so it's through the um, through, through, through work that they would be rescued from this kind of, of, of mental torpor. So institutions therefore set out to rescue what Andrew Highmore, the chronicler of London philanthropy, described in 1810 as a class hitherto considered as doomed to a life of sorrow and discontent. There have been attempts to educate the blind using tactile print from the end of the 17th century um, and these techniques were sort of developed through institutions uh, which proliferated over the first half of the 19th century. By the 1860s, um, the um, London School, uh, shown on the right of the, of the picture here, um, was educating about 160 pupils of both sexes um, by, by the 1860s, as I said. After the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, the state provided some support for pupils so that attendance didn't push families into poverty. So there's some support for pupils to attend um, day or boarding schools uh, through the Poor Law. There are also charitable um, appeals to help send children to um, these kinds of institutions. So workers in the copper works in Swansea, for example, um, had a levy on their wages to fund the attendance of children at blind and deaf schools during the, 
during the mid-Victorian period. Here in Swansea, the um, Swansea and South Wales Institute for the Blind was founded in 1865 and uh, it became a permanent uh, institution in 1873. These institutions follow certain principles. Firstly, to provide some instruction, particularly religious education for pupils. Secondly, to supervise recreation, uh, which ranging from uh, walks and sporting activities through to domestic chores, which uh, is classed under recreation in these schools. And thirdly, to um, teach various forms of manual labour, sometimes in return for a small amount of pay. Institutions became associated with training for particular occupations known as the blind trades, of which basket weaving and brush and mat making and piano tuning are probably the best known. These aren't the only blind trades, but they're the ones most people have heard of. So um, the uh, slide here uh, is an illustration from the London, the Illustrated London News, showing workers um, inside uh, an institution um, uh, uh, assembling baskets. Nowadays, basket weaving um, is seen as indicative of the low expectations of society towards the blind. I was talking to a BBC journalist um, um, a year or so ago who's um, visually impaired and he's, he described uh, in the, as late as the 1980s he was uh, um, encouraged to take up basket weaving at school. Um, you know, not that exactly a, a particularly useful trade at that time. And clearly it's very different from the elevated world of poets, mathematicians, philosophers and engineers described in 1820 in Wilson's biography of the blind. However, we could see those who were taught a trade as being fortunate. In the 1851 census, which was the first to count Britain's blind population, um, it's clear that there are more blind people who are unemployed than um, in uh, any kind of occupation. And so, um, so limiting as this may have been, and it was, it, 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 it uh, did rescue some people from uh, poverty and dependence on the poor law. From around the middle of the Victorian period, there are efforts to reform and improve the system of blind charity. And, and prominent in this movement was uh, a group called the Association of the General Welfare of the Blind, which had been established in 1852 by uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, who was the blind daughter of the principal of an Oxford college. And together with a man called William Hanks Levy, who was uh, himself blind, and he taught at the London Society uh, for Teaching the Blind to Read, um, Gilbert focused on the plight of those who became blind in adulthood, whom she felt were discriminated against by charitable institutions which are aimed at children or young people. And so, because many older blind people, she felt, were passed over by charities, they frequently found themselves uh, reduced to begging or dependence on the poor law. 
And so Gilbert and Levy, through the association, sought to provide training to those who sought immaturity, uh, sorry, who lost their sight of maturity to enable them to find work. So they, they established sheltered workshops, they, um, and they also uh, attempted to protect the labour of blind people. So as well as blind basket makers in the mid-Victorian period, there were um, people selling baskets who pretended that they were made by blind people in order to sell them at a higher price. And so um, Gilbert and Levy were very concerned about this kind of incursion um, into the market and how this depressed the wages of blind workers. So the General Welfare Association set up its own blind workshops to try and pay blind um, basket makers and others at a uh, much more competitive rate and to try and protect their labour uh, in, in the marketplace. Levy also promoted adult education and set up a lending library of books with embossed text. And reading was also promoted by other groups in the middle of the 19th century, such as the Home Visiting Societies, which used the system of, of raise type um, invented by William Moon to provide texts of religious instruction. And the, and the Home Visiting Societies were motivated very much by evangelical religion, which uh, motivated a lot of reform in Victorian Britain. In this uh, picture here, uh, darkness and light um, engraved in 1871, although the original um, uh, painting by George Smith was uh, a bit earlier, mid-19th century. You see the, the uh, um, blind daughter in a large uh, family reading um, from the Bible to her, um, her brothers and sisters. Um, and this is a kind of morality tale. You can see uh, the person um, at the top, the, the male standing figure, um, and smock, looking at her. He's, that's her father, he's a, he's, he wants to go out, but he's been brought back in. And so it sort of represents kind of the purity of this blind girl. And um, it's, it very much ties in with this idea of blind, you know, blind needing to be taught um, from these religious texts. So sentimentalism and purity are big themes in this particular image. So by the 1850s, institutional, institutionalization had established a means of education and training um, for the blind. Nevertheless, it was a practice of starting to attract criticism by a, from a small but vocal group of blind activists. Now, this is part of a broader critique of charity that emerges in the 1850s and 60s. There's broader concern about um, how charitable funds were spent, whether they really tended to the welfare of recipients. Um, there's concern about the running of institutions and the nature of the management and how uh, involved it was in the daily life of institutions. And, um, and these concerns fed into a number of prominent broadsides written against um, blind charity by a number of writers. And this group was led by a man called John Bird, 
who was a former surgeon from Saint, of St. Bartholomew's Hospital, um, who lost his sight in, um, in his late 30s, and thereafter became a prominent figure in debates about the treatment of the blind. And Burt's key work, um, called Contributions to Social Pathology, written in 1862, considered the, po the, the position of the blind and also the position of the deaf and dumb. And he referred to these groups as being the four sensed. So he coins this, this new term to describe them, which seems to define them by their difference rather than their inferiority. Bird argued that the conditions of the blind were to be improved only by blind people taking the lead in, the in these kinds of institutions. For too long, he'd argued, the cause of the blind, uh, I'm quoting him here, the cause of the blind was too much in the hands of those who were insufficiently educated for this very important duty. As a result, blindness was treated as a question of sentimentalism, he said, or of fancy charity, rather than something that thousands of people lived with in their daily lives. Now his main target was the education of uh, blind and deaf children in separate institutions, which he called oubliettes, um, or exile schools, things which separated the, the four sensed from the rest of society. So he criticised them for failing to integrate the blind or deaf into society. He also argued that too much of the money that went into these institutions went on buildings and on paying sighted members of staff rather than being invested in the pupils themselves. And he also criticised the monotonous nature of work done in institutions that did little to stimulate the mental faculties of inmates. Instead, he and his supporters promoted integrated educational, home and social schooling, as he termed it, whereby blind or deaf children were educated alongside their uh, five-sensed uh, uh, peers. So these campaigners of the Bird and, uh, and others were, were ahead of their time in their views on integrated schooling. It's part of a process of greater social inclusion. And in believing that the blind had social rights and educational training that would prepare them for life in the community. He also articulated the idea that the miseries of blindness, uh, so-called, stem not from the lack of sight, but rather from the way in which blind people were treated by the rest of society. So these attacks on sentimentalism and on the, on the uh, organisation of charity and the desire for integration seem strikingly modern, but not all of the ideas of Bird and his supporters would find ready acceptance today. Bird, for example, um, was critical of blind people marrying each other, for example, because he argued that this perpetuates um, a kind of uh, isolation. 
So he was very, very, um, very concerned about that and wanted to, to, um, to, to discourage it. He also uh, was a strong critic of uh, sign language and the deaf, because again, he, he felt, felt that this not only um, was difficult for blind people to converse with deaf people, but it also that sign language separated deaf people from the rest of society. And these are ideas associated with eugenicists in the 19th century, but it's slightly so so um, uncomfortable perhaps to find them articulated by those who spoke out for the rights of, um, of people with disabilities. So the 1860s saw some experiments in this kind of integrated education that Bird and others were, um, were, were promoting. <laughs> But despite the passion of people like John Bird, integrated schooling tended to prove impractical in later Victorian England. And so the emphasis shifted over the second part of the 19th century, not towards the home and social system of, edu of integrated education that Bird wanted, but towards improving standards within institutions. <coughs> and Eventually, improvements within institutions made calls for integrated schooling less pressing. An important development in this respect is the foundation of the Royal Normal College for the Blind in 1871. This institution was intended to be a paradigm for progressive education for blind pupils. It set out to improve standards of blind education by uh, regularly testing pupils' intellectual abilities and set out to provide a wider syllabus that, um, that was, than that which was normally offered in, um, in blind institutions, in particular through promoting the use of Braille. Uh, this uh, slide here, the last of the slide, shows two types of, um, or two main types of um, embossed um, print or tactile print in, in, available in the 19th century, the moon system, um, which uh, this uh, moon's alphabet spelling out God is love, showing the kind of evangelical motives behind the um, invention of the moon. And uh, the Braille system on the other side, as practiced here by the Royal Normal College for the Blind, which is seen as a much more um, versatile um, mode of communication. Um, founder of the Royal Normal College was Thomas Rhodes Armitage, who was a leading blind educationalist. He sought to raise the standard in residential schools so that, so that they would surpass education available in day schools. So he was ambitious for his pupils at the Royal Normal College. And this institution became crucial for producing blind teachers who could extend uh, the methods used in the Royal Normal College to other schools. And by 1912, some 61 former pupils were in employment as teachers. So, by the end of the 19th century, there were over 50 blind institutions providing education and training for over a thousand young people. So there's a big growth in blind education during the century. Richard Glenvivian was clearly interested in these developments. So on the 4th of July 1903, as he was coming to terms with his own sight loss, he recorded attending a garden party in Norwood at the Royal, at the Normal College for the Blind. Um, 
almost some kind of fundraising event, but also intended to demonstrate and show off the abilities of the pupils at this um, establishment. And his diaries also record attendance at other fundraising events for visually impaired children. Philanthropy undoubtedly drew on sentimental understandings of blindness. And this idea of blindness as an inherently pitiable state was widespread in Victorian and Edwardian culture. The blind were robbed of the ability to engage in the arts and civilizations, so it was argued, that were the hallmark of Glenvivian's remarkable collection. But the idea of the blind as having compensa compensating abilities was also an important idea. This helped to motivate the first the establishment of schools and then eventually through things through institutions like the Royal Normal College um, for raising the ambitions uh, of blind pupils. So the blind were pitiable, but from the 18th century they're also seen as uh, capable of improvement and education. Institutions get a bad press. We think about the Victorian period, think of institutions as um, repressive, cruel uh, places. Undoubtedly, that was the case with some of them. But they also helped to inculcate a sense of unity and a sense of identity. And so the history of blindness in the 19th century, as I've talked about today, is not just a history of charity and sentimentalism, but it's also a history of anger and activism. Although figures like John Bird of minority voices in the 19th century, they put forward some strikingly modern ideas. And while separate education remains the norm for, um, uh, for much of the period up to the Second World War and beyond, Victorian ideas about integrating blind and sighted pupils presage modern calls by disability activists for better integration of disabled and non-disabled children in mainstream schools. Nowadays we tend to caricature the Victorian period, uh, or the 19th century in general, as repressive, cruel, or cloyingly sentimental when it came to the treatment of people with disabilities. It was all of those things, but if we look closer, we can find alternative stories. James Wilson's exploration of blind people's history to provide uh, inspiration and challenge society's low expectations, through to Thomas Rhodes Armitage's promotion of a challenging curriculum that saw the intellectual capabilities of blind learners as being no different to sighted ones. We could see that, we could argue that the 19th century values concerning disability could be progressive. Thank you very much.